Hi, everyone. I think we're going to make a start. Um, hello. Welcome this evening. My name is Jodie Marks. I'm Exhibitions and Events Curator at the Architecture Centre next door to Arnolfini here. I'm pleased to welcome you to this evening's event and I'd like to thank the team at Arnolfini for uh, hosting us and the support they give. As ever, Architecture Centre is very grateful for the support of Arts Council England and UE Bristol, as well as many other um, supporters that enable us to do the work that we do. Um, this evening is the first in a series of design thinking talks that we're pleased to be co-presenting with the Department of Architecture and Built Environment at UE Bristol um, as part of our fruitful ongoing partnership uh, between our organisations. Um, so we're pleased to continue our work together and in this particular forum to highlight ideas and issues, inform, provoke debate and discussion around key themes. So shortly I'm going to be handing over to Matt Jones, who's senior lecturer at UE Bristol and also a partner at Coombe Jones Architects. Um, they recently were selected as part of the Architecture Foundation's New Architect 3 um, publication, um, which focuses on Britain's best emerging practices. So Matt's going to be chairing this evening's event and welcoming the speakers um, and who have been invited to share their stories around the challenges and rewards of um, working and setting up emerging architectural practices. Um, but later this month, we'll have Design Thinking 2, the second in the series. Uh, so that's on the 30th of November. We'll be welcoming Chris Loyne of Loyne & Co. So um, they won the Mansa Medal, um, which is the RBA, RBA House Award, in 2014 for the Stormy Castle, which was a Code 5 family home in Wales. And they're also on this year's Sterling Prize shortlist um, for another home, Outhouse, which was in Wales, um, which was in the Forest of Dean, sorry. Um, and then... We're looking forward to next March for another two talks in this series. Um, so there'll be more details on those in the new year. Um, but you can book for Chris Loyne uh, with the box office on your way out, if you fancy. Um, I should also mention that it's the last week of the Architecture Centre's 20th anniversary exhibition just next door. Um, it, it finishes on Sunday, so that looks at 20 years of placemaking across the city. So I encourage you to, to check that out if you haven't already. And you can also pick up um, 20 postcards on RBA award-winning buildings uh, from the Bristol area as well. That's of interest. Uh, but back to this evening, and um, each of our four practices will be invited to speak for, to give short 10-minute uh, presentations before all coming together for a discussion with Matt uh, and a chance for you to ask some questions too. So we'll have roaming mics for that. Um, do form your questions as they're speaking and, and wait for one of the mics to come to you before, before talking. Um, without further ado, I'm pleased to hand over to, to Matt um, to welcome our speakers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jodie. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I have the job of just introducing our speakers and then waving frantically when they get near their time limit. Uh, so look out for that. Um, we've got four really interesting local practices lined up uh, here to talk tonight. Uh, we've got Barefoot uh, Architecture, Emmett Russell Architects, Mark Ray Architects, uh, and Stonewood Design. Uh, as Jody said, we are inviting each of them to come and talk for about 10 or 12 minutes about what they do and how they do it, and then we'll open a discussion to the floor. So um, first up tonight, we've got Sam Goss from uh, Barefoot Architects. Uh, Sam runs the practice with uh, Rob Hankey, his co-director. The, the practice, as we'll hear, uh, is set up to consider sustainable and low-impact design um, with a particular emphasis on community-led and participatory practices. So I'd like to welcome Sam to come and give our first talk. 
Thanks very much, Matt. Um, thanks for inviting me here today. It's fantastic to see you know, quite a few familiar faces. Um, and let's hope that those people that I've taught um, think that I might be able to practice what I preach. Um, I, I've just started off uh, doing this as a prezi, so hopefully it's not too boring for you and you've not seen too many whizzy things and it will be nice and calm. Um, I, I've sort of called this an emerging ethos. We sort of sat around talking in the office what our ethos is and in the context of emerging practice. And I think we're, it's fair to say that we're a very young practice. We're um, three years old at best and still really trying to define exactly um, how the projects we're working on fit into a, a trajectory. Um, so I'm going to call this an emerging ethos. Um, I'm going to talk about a few things. I'm going to talk about um, what we are, who we are, what we've done. I'm also going to talk about uh, a bit of the process that we like to try and work with, with community groups. Um, and I'm then going to talk about actually some of the other people and the other things that are so essential to a project's being undertaken and how our role fits into that as architects. Um, and that's going to be focused on a project called Bridport Co-Housing um, that I've been working on for the last six years um, and still trying to get to, uh, to be built. And, and just a, a few of the kind of themes within that as a scheme and how those might relate to some of the other work that we do. Um, so here we go. Bear with me with the Prezi. Hopefully it works. So who are we to talk? Well, um, we set up Barefoot Architects um, on the, the sort of meaning of the Chinese Barefoot Doctors. Um, the Chinese Barefoot Doctors used to go from um, town to town and village to village and offer communities who didn't necessarily have access to essential medical services um, useful uh, skills and similarly we um, seek to try and work with a variety of clients who might not necessarily have always thought that they could afford or could work with architects and we believe that you know good design should be available to everybody um, and so I think you know through doing that we really want to empower as many people as we can to try and build a better future um, for their communities for themselves um, no matter what the scale we work um, together uh, with a co-director, Rob Hankey, who joined me in January. And I think the purpose of this slide is to say that, you know, aside from being architects, we're human beings. We've got a wide set of interests that influence the way in which we think and the way in which we design. Um, just a quick flick through some of the sectors that we work on, which fall within the homes, housing and community projects. This was the first building that I designed and built independently. Um, it was a self-built house um, that I was fortunate enough to do for my parents built out of rammed chalk from site excavated material. Um, and this is one that we've recently completed in Portishead, which again was um, a custom-built house um, done in collaboration with a local contractor um, and enabling the client to actually finish the interior of the house himself because of some of the skills he has. Another one, um, we work in a lot of different contexts. This was a, a large family extension to um, a listed cottage out in uh, Long Ashton. And so we kind of, we like to work in a variety of contexts. On a housing front, we've been working in Bristol recently on a commercial project, but we've tried to bring a sort of social ethos to it, um, encouraging neighborliness and creating better design, which might actually uh, enable families to live in with it, within flats in the city center, which we think is important. Um, we've also worked on sort of larger scale custom build sites. This is sort of 45 houses, um, actually on a greenbelt site in Surrey that's very poor quality at the moment, where we worked um, with the variety of residents there to try and pull together something better to um, use the land appropriately. Um, and this is a bit of Bridport co-housing, which I'll go into. And, and where possible, we try and sort of really give good um, consideration to local context and how things can be very site specific. Community jobs, um, we've been working with a charity 
um, uh, who are Weymouth Rowing Club to do a new rowing um, sort of boat shed for them. It's been really interesting. A lot of community partic participation with that, both from the club and from local people. Um, and then within our own uh, neighbourhood, where I live and close to where we work for, for Brislington, we actually did a bit of volunteering um, to try and uh, undertake some community consultation to ask the people of Brislington, you know, how do they see their future evolving? There's a lot of pressure on the area at the moment. Um, and, and what would they like to see to make it better? And we just go out and ask people questions. We stand on the street, we look like idiots, and, um, and people give us some fantastic ideas. And we, we really believe that that's the way in which we need to be able to work to carry momentum from local people. Um, we've also been working, lucky enough to work in Southmead with uh, the community association up there on the potential uh, feasibility study for a new, um, a new uh, community hub. Um, which has been a really interesting process engaging with a variety of different um, stakeholders. And then this I'm going to focus on a little bit more is, is the master plan for Bridport co-housing, which is for 34 affordable um, co-housing units, homes, um, with a common house on a fantastic uh, greenfield site in an area of outstanding natural beauty in uh, West Dorset. So I think, you know, what, what we're interested in as a practice is, you know, as I've touched on, how do we actually grow our places, our communities, our towns, our cities, not just as architects with a kind of master plan vision that we impose on people, but how do we do that together um, with the people that it will most affect? And I think we've sort of developed a set of tools where we try and inform local people through a series of quite crude public consultation exercises often, but very regularly. Um, and we stand out in the rain, and we meet people, and we find out what their concerns are. Um, we engage with people, happy to sit down with anybody that we ever meet throughout a, a project's process. And I think that's such an important skill as architects that we need to be able to um, actually understand how people feel about um, the places that they live. And then ideally, we get people to participate in the design process. So for Bridport Co-Housing, we undertook a series of design workshops where we actually invited residents to play with our models, to move them around, to interrogate them, to challenge what we'd done. Were the design decisions right for them? And actually, the project was overwhelmingly richer as a result of it. Hopefully, hopefully, if we do our job right as a result of that, I think those people feel really empowered that they've had a really positive, genuine contribution to the project. And if we do that right, then I think they get a sense of ownership from it, that at the end of the day, it's actually not, I don't care whether or not we get credited with it particularly, I think it's down to them to say, this is our, these are our homes, this is our community, it's our field, it's our land, and we've done this, and we are enablers of that. And I think the important thing that we kind of often talk about is, is we're kind of relatively um, insignificant parts of the process because so many people become involved in an architectural project these days and we simply have to embrace that and I think part of what we're realizing is that um, as architects the design side of things it should be a given it's the easy bit we've got to do that well it's got to be persuasive it's got to be interesting seductive and well designed it's all of the other things it's all of the other processes of finance of legals of constraints of planning Everything which is arguably very contingent to our ability as architects. But actually, I think if we embrace and engage those things, we can build stronger projects and deliver better things and actually regain some of the control that I think a lot of architects feel that the, as a profession we may have lost. So this is just a, a short list 
of some of the people that have been involved in Bridport co-housing. And, you know, I'd put the residents in the middle of it, and I'd say, as architects, we're sort of somewhere down the bottom. Um, but I think, you know, that's not to underplay the role we have. It's simply to be humble enough to say, we're not the only ones doing this. We were really lucky in Bridport that, unusually for a housing project, there was a, a landowner who was prepared to give a site on the edge of the town within the AOMB, Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, on a fantastic site, um, an opportunity for local people to try and develop their own housing. Um, and they wanted to do that. They felt they wanted to leave a legacy for themselves and their family of something positive on a paddock that they owned. That site was absolutely undevelopable by anybody else. It, it actually got through the planning process. Firstly, it sought to be um, a site for 100% affordable housing, such that it could be a rural exception site. And, and I urge anybody in here that's not doing the planning course at UE to also really kind of take seriously planning policy, because without it, we can't play the game. Um, and we were really lucky here that we, we were given this site for a, a massively reduced cost. And because of the community-led nature of it, because local people stood up and said, yes, it's in an AOMB, yes, you can see it from this hill, yes, there are protected views, but actually, we want to build our own houses there. We want to engage with the local residents who are actually very against this. And through doing so, it, it grew an enormous support and managed through... Uh, a wave of momentum to persuade an otherwise very, very difficult planning authority. So what makes Bridport Co-Housing special? I mean, I think there's a few little, few little things here. You know, we always try and design in a landscape. I study landscape architecture and architecture. I'm really interested in the relationship between buildings and site and context, how they land and fall within the particular, specific, unique context in which they happen to be built. How do they relate to that? I think it's really important we design places for people. Bridport's got a lot of places that um, people can share and they can come together um, and form strong, hopefully really powerful, lasting human relationships across multi-generations. Um, and it's also a place where um, hopefully they'll be able to grow food for themselves and, and sustain in part um, their own lives. So uh, straight out of the 1970s here, we've got a few um, sketches that we've done for, for the consultation there. You know, and to say it's a place for people, well, of course, that's obvious. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we've actively sought to remove cars from a neighborhood where people live. We have pushed them to the edge of a site so that the streets can be car free, so that people's children's can, uh, children's children can go out to the front of their houses and play safely, so that neighbors might get to know one another. And the street parties in Bristol that we have are plenty, absolutely attest to the power of removing cars from our neighborhoods. It's such a wonderful thing. A place to share. It's got a common house, which is kind of a community hall. Many of you probably know a bit about co-housing. It's really essential that you know, we've designed spaces where people can come together, they can eat and share food. And that's such an important thing. And then lastly, it's a place to grow. So we've integrated planting on the buildings, behind the buildings, at the front of the buildings, um, wherever we can to ensure this is a very soft space. I've summarized that. So I think just to summarize, what, what, what is our ethos as Barefoot Architects? Well, we think we should be designing for people, and that's you know, for clients, for individuals, for communities, and not just for other architects. 
we think we should be designing with people. It's got to be a massively collaborative process where we acknowledge, recognize, and appreciate the input from the myriad other people that participate in a project. We just can't do it by ourselves. And we've got to be able to do more than just design. Design should be a given for architects. It's all of the soft skills that we've got to develop of communication, of engagement, of listening, of finance, of planning, of policy, of legal stuff. And if we can regain some of our ground on that, then I feel as though as architects, we've got a strong profession and a strong future, which I'm excited about. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Uh, okay, so our second speaker uh, today is Tom Russell from Emmett Russell Architects. Uh, Tom set up uh, his practice initially as Tom Russell Architects in 2001 before uh, going into partnership uh, with Victoria Emmett in 2014. Um, I think their practice has a lot to do with working with sensitive sites and contexts and engagement with teaching and research as well. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Tom for his 12 minutes to talk about his practice. Thank you. Right. <clears throat> Thanks very much. Um, so I've, uh, I've, I've called our little slot this evening uh, embracing the unbuilt um, largely because rather than by, rather by accident than, than, than design that's the, the sort of basis on which our um, practice has developed over the last decade. I'm going to give you a little 10 minute potted history of how unbuilt projects have enabled us to, uh, to, to, to build up our practice over that period. Um, this was the, uh, the front page of building design back in 2013 when we won a, a big ROBA competition to uh, design some new re retirement housing for a major um, house build in McCarthy and Stone. And I think the, the headline really sums up um, sort of our, our experiences in starting a practice in that we've um, in many ways been very successful at winning competitions but been much less successful about getting those competitions built. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to sort of go over that, 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 the, 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 the idea of sort of competitions and, and, and how they have led to the, uh, uh, by a process of attrition really, in the, in the development of our practice. As a practice, we were founded really in, in initially in our collaboration as teachers. Vicky, Emma, and myself taught for a number of years at UWE, running. Um, second year design studio for, 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 for a while. This is a project we did here at the Arnold Phoenix, um, probably back in 2007 or so, I imagine. Um, but a large part of what we did um, in teaching students during that period was focused on urban design, focused on um, issues around housing. And the process of looking endlessly at housing precedent studies, of working with students, going over, looking at different sites, trying to work through housing strategies, led us eventually, after a number of years, to realize that actually, um, as well as bringing skills 
of practice to teaching. We, we, we had a lot that we were taking out of it. We, we developed real skills in understanding how, um, how housing can work. And we wanted to go from there. We wanted to try and work out how we could take some of that knowledge that we'd acquired through our teaching experience and, and, and apply it back into practice. How could we start to build some of the sorts of things that we've been working through with students? And this is where we come to the fundamental dilemma that I think all small emerging practices face, which is how can you make that leap to, to working on slightly bigger projects when you're constantly confronted with the, the catch-22 where in order to, um, in order to win a, a, a substantial project, you have to demonstrate that you've already built a substantial project previously. It's the, it's the dilemma um, that, that, that is a sort of catch-22 at its, at, at its um, most fundamental level. And I think we figured out the, the only way really for us to break through this um, was through entering open competitions. So the first one that, um, that came to our attention was the Europan competition. I don't know if any of you have heard of Europan. It's a big organization that organizes biannual uh, architectural competitions with a number of sites set out across Europe. It's aimed at architects under 40. Um, and I think we saw this as a great opportunity to try and get our foot in the door of, of housing design. We, we chose a site in Milton Keynes. We thought strategically it was a good site. It was one that we thought was, was difficult. It was one that, because it was a greenfield site, it didn't have very much to grab onto. And we thought there was an opportunity for us to, um, to, 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 to find some ideas that could do quite well in that. And it was also one that had high hopes of actually um, getting built. The, the, the client group were very keen to um, use this as a sort of basis for um, uh, setting standards in a large expansion area on the edge of Milton Keynes. Um, Milton Keynes is a, is a kind of interesting city. It's, it's, it's unlike any other city in the UK. It's very focused around car use, but it's, it's got an incredible number of trees and green connections that, that link the whole city together. You can drive right through it and not even know you've been in a city at all. It's called, it calls itself the um, city in the forest. And I think the, the basic premise of our competition entry was to take this idea that actually these, these trees and the green connection were, were fundamental to the character of Milton Keynes and needed to be threaded through the new scheme. But our idea essentially was that rather than um, promoting the idea of a city in a forest, we could invert that to create something that was more sustainable uh, and, and, and higher density um, so that the proposal became uh, the forest in the city that each urban block would, would pr provide a sort of landscaped link that connected to other, other parts of the um, city. Um, and you, you can see in the model here that the, the, the idea of this sort of forest at the heart of each urban block. I'm not going to dwell um, <coughs> on, on any of the projects we're talking about tonight. Really, I was kind of interested in, in, in this process of, of working through competitions. Um, so. We were delighted when we actually won that competition. It's our, our first competition. We won it and immediately got quite excited about the prospect of, uh, of building this thing. We rolled our sleeves up, went to meet Milton Keynes Council. Um, but sadly, um, the, the competition got caught up in the politics of, of Milton Keynes local authority. The people that had been driving the competition, which were the architecture department at Milton Keynes um, Council, they they were essentially um, sort of shoved aside. Key characters were were sacked. 
and all of the sort of design aspirations that the council had set out in, in, in commissioning the competition was lost. And with it, our, our hopes of actually getting something built. <coughs> Just got a score, scoreboard here so you can keep track of what's going on here. This is our first big competition win, but sadly, nothing built came out of it. Luckily, though, there was a developer in Cornwall at the time who had spotted our um, winning entry for the European competition and invited us down to participate in, in a competition of their own, a small invited competition. They had a piece of seafront uh, just on the edge of Penzance, which needed a bit of um, reworking. They wanted a fairly substantial mixed-use development on the site. And obviously, it's a fantastic opportunity. We threw ourselves at it with full gusto, developed a scheme that we thought absolutely convincing, bound to win the competition. We couldn't really fail with this one. Sent it off happily to the, to the, um, uh, the, the developer client. I think, crucially in this one, actually, that, that there was no third party involved in the organisation of the competition, which I think we should have been made us a bit wary in the first place. But anyway, submitted our entry, heard nothing. Um, until we realised... Mulwyn Homes, our client, had actually gone into administration. So sadly, just to keep the score going, competitions to built projects, zero. Anyway, not to be deterred, we saw another opportunity shortly after that where the ROBA was running a big open, big open national competition for uh, the design of the extension to a village. They wanted a sustainable housing project in a village called Lorraine in the uh, Pembrokeshire Coast National Park. So again, we threw ourselves into this with full enthusiasm, went up to Pembrokeshire, spent a lot of time trying to get to under the skin of the village, trying to understand the particular characteristics of that place. Put a, um, <clears throat> what we thought was quite a compelling idea about how you marry the technology of, uh, uh, of low-energy um, homes with the, the, the sort of characteristics of the, the rural Welsh village. Um, and lo and behold... We won that one as well. So we were incredibly excited. Really fantastic client for this project. Um, but just remember the year this is. This is 2008. Shortly afterwards, financial disaster happened. The markets crashed. The credit crunch happened. And sadly, that project also ground to a halt at that point. Um, not to be deterred, we, we started looking further afield for opportunities for competitions. We actually managed to be invited to a, uh, participate in a competition for an international school in the Arabian Desert. So this is a Salala, a place in the southern Oman. Um, this is the site for the competition. And we were actually uh, in a shortlist of two. We went out to present our ideas to, to the client. We got to sort of meet um, government ministers in Oman. And we, we, we had the cunning plan of actually joining forces with the opposition so, so that actually they were only presented with one proposal. We thought we can't fail. No way we can lose this competition. Um, but sadly, they pulled the plug on the project. Nothing happened. Competitions for built projects nil. Anyway, after smarting from our wounds for a number of years, we came back, tempted back into the realm of competitions in, in 2013 when the RIBA uh, joined forces with McCarthy and Stone, who are a really big national uh, retirement home developer, to uh, <coughs> stage another competition. This one, with the ambition of rethinking how retirement work, re retirement housing is working in this country, um, we put forward a proposal that really 
try to challenge the, the, the sort of existing methodology that um, McCarthy and Stone were using. We argued that, that, that actually what you had to do is to remove the corridor in order to deinstitutionalize a lot of the retirement housing that was around there. The, the, the corridor seemed to me fundamentally emblematic of the, the kind of problem of the product that they were offering people. We were invited, shortlisted and invited to present our ideas to the, to the board at McCarthy and Stone, to the, the judging panel. And I don't know, naively or bravely, we, we, we took it upon ourselves to, to tear apart a, a sort of typical example of what they're offering at the moment and um, explained why it was such a poor product that they're offering. Anyway, despite this, we did win the competition, but as, as, as you, you saw at the beginning of the little talk here, um, that, that one wasn't built either. However, um, that wasn't the end of the story because whilst they didn't offer us the competition site that we'd won, we did get our foot in the door with McCarthy and Stone and they started to offer us a series of other opportunities and sites. This is one that we worked on uh, in Buckinghamshire in a town called Wendover where again we were given a site in the grounds of a rather lovely uh, arts and crafts listed house. Um, in order to, 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 to do some um, retirement flats. It was sort of slightly different than what, what McCarthy and Stone were offering elsewhere. And we managed to secure planning permission for them. They were very pleased with that. I think they, they'd sort of seen this as a bit of a no-hoper site that they would never, never get planning for. So, so immediately, suddenly, we were cast as the sort of small practice that could deal with sensitive sites in a way that perhaps they, they, they weren't able to deal with um, in, in, in any other way. Um, so that one, thankfully, has gone ahead. So this is where we start to break our duct. Um, <coughs> this, this is a project uh, as it was a few months back. It's now almost completed. So we're, we're kind of starting to turn the tables. And again, on the back of the success of that one, we were given another project by them. This one is a fairly substantial site right on the seafront in Portsmouth in, um, in South Sea, next to the pier. Um, with extraordinary sort of seafront views. And I guess the, the, I think we saw our role there as, as really sort of stitching back together some of the urban fabric that had become rather pulled apart at that time. So it was a sort of repair job at the scale of the city. And we put forward a proposal, um, which again managed to get through planning. And this is the project as it was a couple of weeks ago. So in the space of the last couple of years, we've gone from having built almost no substantial projects to having quite a few things at, at, at a fairly advanced scale at the moment. Back to Lorraine, eight years after the first competition, this year it, it, it was sort of taken off the shelf, shaken down, and it's due uh, to be submitted for planning in the next few weeks. So another one, suddenly you kind of realize actually patience and perseverance is, is, is kind of the name of the game in, in, in terms of overcoming that fundamental problem with um, small practice of how you break into bigger bigger projects. And on the back of um, the success we've had through the competitions, that suddenly enabled us to be able to bid and, and get involved in, in, in other projects that always ha have been sort of beyond us and, it, uh, and that we felt excluded from before. So suddenly, as soon as you've got something that's more substantial, it, the whole sort of world opens up to you. This is a passive house new build council housing project that we're working on in, in, in Hembury in Bristol where we've got three sites that are um, fairly advanced stage on site at the moment. 
Um, so that's the end of what I wanted to say, really. It, it's just a, the sort of tale of gritting teeth and perseverance and working, using the unbuilt projects as a way of, of, of sort of breaking that, um, that catch-22 that we're it's all stuck in as, as small practices. Thanks, Tom. A uh, couple of minutes over, but I'll let you off. Um, okay, third up tonight, we have uh, Mark Ray from Mark Ray Architects, practice founded in 2013, based in Bath. Um, practice does a lot of work reimagining historic buildings um, in sensitive context across the southwest, um, as far as London. So, um, Mark, uh, welcome to the stage. So um, I thought I'd show you um, where I started um, three years ago. This is our um, spare bedroom at home. Um, you see the bed on the right. This is where it all um, started. Um, and I, I sort of assumed that I'd end up starting as a, a freelancer, but um, because a lot of people, you know a lot of architects as an architect, um, people were very generous to us and, and, and um, gave us some work our way. So things snowballed quite quickly. Um, so this is our office today. Um, there are people. People do work there. It's just, uh, but um, so we have a core staff of, of four people, um, and we have two freelancers that sub, that help with us with our ebb and, f ebb and flow of the work that we have. Um, but I mean, crucial. I mean, you start a practice and you base it on your own experience of working in other places. And, f and for me, what was important was that um, everyone is a team effort, and it's, everyone works together. Um, and so we we've got this central desk which was, I spent ages trying to find um, but everyone sits on it and it's a bit like a kitchen table that we all sort of sit around and it's the team working together which we try and um, try and keep together and that's, that's something that's quite unique for a small practice is, is to have that sense of family which we, we try and pursue um, and what we didn't want is is this sort of um, unhealthy working of, of day and night constant constant so um, from, the, from the outset, we were keen to establish um, a healthy working environment. So we've invested in IT um, and things so that we allow flexible working, people work from home and things like that. Um, and we try and avoid the uh, habitual culture of long hours um, so that you know, everyone's got a life outside of architecture. So, well, they have, I don't. Um, so we, we try to um, encourage that. So, um, but it, it's quite a tight ship that we have to run. So um, we have Monday morning meetings where we discuss what our deadlines are for the week. And those weekly deadlines turn into monthly targets um, for which we then invoice and we all get paid and we all can pay our mortgages. Um, and as you're probably aware, there are, um, there are a lot of architects in Bristol and Bath. Um, so, and we were keen as a new practice not to um, be pigeonholed into just doing domestic extensions. So um, we sort of based a, uh, a specialism based on the experience that I had of working in um, historic buildings and, and historic contexts for, for 15 years before I set up. So. Um, but we didn't want to be conservation architects, we wanted to do contemporary design as well. Um, and we didn't want to preclude the, the notion of any new build. But so we came up with this, so we were uh, an architecture studio that reimagines historic buildings um, and settings through contemporary design. And our, um, our shop window was, say, we were trying to avoid um, doing um, dress extensions too much. There's nothing wrong with them, but you have too much of a good thing. Um, so we built a website um, that basically mixed mixed our um, domestic work with the experience that we had from um, previous pro 
previous um, uh, practices. Um, so that's a way of showcasing our, our skills that we have, and it became, as I say, a shop window for, for, our, um, for our practice. And we also noticed that um, in Bath, well, well um, we didn't want to be pigeonholed in just a working in Bath, if, as beautiful as it is. So within a two-hour radius, we can reach London and we can reach the southwest as well. So, um, we've, But we've had projects in London and, um, and Devon as well, so that's quite an quite, um, achievement. So in terms of um, an ethos or an approach, uh, we were keen to um, look at the nature of historic buildings is that you have to abide by certain um, characteristics. So the, the idea of anything that you do has to be of quality, using quality materials, um, and then a sense of appropriateness as well, so in terms of a response to this historic setting and, 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 and some sense of the brief as well, the client's brief. And there's a, always an overriding work, um, need to be respond, uh, uh, legible, so a legible layer of history to sit against the other aspects of it. Um, and I'm also keen to um, pursue uh, uh, simple solutions as well because the buildings can be quite complex, um, especially with the layering of history. So, it, so it's quite important that the, the new layer is quite simple and um, expressed clearly, and it complements the, the previous building. Um, so, unlike um, Sam, I couldn't persuade my parents for me to build a house, so I had to do our own. So, <laughs> this is this is our um, this is this is our house in um, in Bath, and uh, my my wife's an architect as well. Um, but I assumed the architect, the role of the architect, and she became the client. Um, and 42 options later, we decided that we were going to go ahead with with a certain scheme. Um, and as uh, architects have, you know, generally small budgets, so we had a quite tight budget as well. But you can see the, the garden's very restricted in the centre of Bath, um, and it has a very low-grade kitchen extension on the side there. So our plan um, was to was just to um, create a private courtyard space at the back, so where the kitchen extension was, there's a kitchen, ki um, dining room, and uh, living space. So all, all the living space comes around the um, central courtyard, so it becomes very private, and I don't get so obsessed about the parking nightmare that's going on outside the house, because it's, it's out, out the other way. So... That's quite important. And so the, the end result was something a bit more in, inspired by, um, if anyone knows, the, the John Utsen's um, courtyard houses in, in Denmark, the Kingo houses. Um, we like that sort of sense of materiality. So um, we've got a similar sort of clay tile roof, um, oak frame, post-nital frame. Everything came through the front door, so everything comes. Um, but the frame allows us to open up and really make best use of the space that we had. And then moving up a scale, um, this is a house in Devon that we've um, completed last year. And in a way, the, this comes back to the, the uh, notion of legibility. So you can see that in the centre there's a, there's a Georgian farmhouse, and then being by the coast, the Victorians love the seaside, the British seaside. So we, um, they added a extension to the front and the back, so a nice formal entrance, and then the servants' quarters at the back. And then through the 21st and through the 20th century, little ad hoc um, extensions were added to that. Um, and it be, the house is very cellular, and cellular accommodation isn't really great for um, modern family living. So we, um, we pursued the idea of creating a long gallery. So the long gallery connects the kitchen with the family room, and it creates a space um, where you can take the views in, so at the far, far left, that's where you, the only place you can see the sea from the house. So we're quite keen to, to exploit that. Um, and then the end result was um, something a bit like that. So... <laughs> Um, and let's say it's quite back to the idea of the materiality that it's got a lead roof which ties in with the historic nature of the, of the 
of the roofs uh, to the existing house, and it also has a slate um, masonry pier there as well, which, which ties in with the roof as well, and the coastal nature of that. Um, that's just a picture inside, so you just about see the sea on one of those. But it's quite um, nice. But um, like, like as Tom says, uh, we do a lot of um, a lot of domestic work, and we're, and we're keen to test our approach from the new build sector as well. Um, and you know, as small projects, as an architect, a new architect, you are excluded from um, getting into the normal procurement routes for being not having experience as a, as a practice, even though you might have it personally. So we've started doing competitions as well. We can only really afford to do one or two a year. So um, the first year we did um, Imagine Bath, where we came runners up, and this year we um, we won the um, Visitor Hub for the Wooden Trust in this, this summer. I'll just give you a brief summary of, of how that works. Um, this is a site. It's um, You can see the M M25 at the bottom, and there's Epsom Racecourse just above where it says Langley Vale. And it's a 640-acre farmland. 600-acre, um, sorry, far, part farmland, farm ancient woodland. And they're going to be planting 100 hectares of new native trees in there. And the only place they could put the car park was at the top there in that red circle. Um, and the only place the, the um, visitor centre could go was, was next to it on the other side of the trees. Um, but with the rest of the site expanding towards the bottom, so what... We, what we decided to do was to create a building um, that would direct people from the from the car park out to the um, out to the, the woodland walks, and so as you come from the car park, you go through the coppice of trees, and then you get the views of the city of London far away. So we capture that view, and then you're led um, under the building under a, under a um, external uh, sort of colonnade out to where the view out to the woodland walks. Things like that, and in between the um, the building that we created and the copies of trees, we created what a space of a clearing, so the sense of a clearing between the trees, where we where we designed a um, an event space. Because what we didn't want to do is is encourage um, commercial um, urban sort of behaviour to in in the natural environment. We wanted to contain that within the within the confines of the building. Um, as you can see, the building we designed as timber so it goes back to the idea of an appropriate response to a site and to a client so wooden trust has to be made of wood we thought um, um, and similarly the, the plan is relatively straightforward as well we've got um, toilets on the left hand side which can be accessed separately on the other side we've got hall for, for events and the center where the two where the two geometries meet is the entrance into the, the main space but our um, key concept for this um, was the idea of a fallen tree. So it's actually known as deadwood, but we didn't think we'd call it deadwood. <laughs> so we called it fallen tree, um, and it, that creates an ecosystem um, around it um, by, the, by its nature of it rotting and, and things, things live in it. So we're keen to pick up on that aspect of it. So we, we've got birds flying into the, into the roof space, we've got roof boxes there. And we've got, um, un, un, in the undercroft of the building, we've got um, worms and things going in there. And we also wanted to get um, lichen grown onto the building as well to, to pick up on that. So, um, yeah, so hopefully, um, I'm a bit nervous now Tom said anything gets built, but uh, we're, um, it should be open in two years' time, so we have started the process of working with a client on that one. So, But just to summarise, um, in, um, in the spirit of electoral, and electoral analysis, we've been analysing our workload, so we've done 65 projects since we started um, 
as you can see, the vast majority are 94% um, are existing buildings. But there's a little hope there. 6% six, six is new build, one of which one is the Woodland Trust as well. Um, project value, I mean, everyone who starts off is very, you start at the very small scale. Um, so a huge percentage, 54% of our work is below 150,000 pounds for each project. But as we've developed, we've got more work, we're now, um, able to choose our projects a bit more so we we try to shy away from them because anyone who's, who does small projects knows they're very difficult <laughs> and very time consuming so we try to avoid them where we can but i'd say some of them are nice um again we knew that we'd be focusing mostly on residential when we started up um but 20 percent isn't so one in five of our projects isn't a house, which is quite exciting so we're working on a, a quaker meeting house in bath we've got a, a shop a cafe a little bit about Bristol as well, so it's it's um it's building up to be something quite quite exciting. Um, um, Fifty percent is in Bath, which is surprising. Only only six percent in Bristol, so it's almost as if there's too many architects here taking all the work. We can't break Bristol. Right? Um, and this was the interesting fact. I I thought we'd build a website and everyone would come via the website, but they're not. We have twelve percent of our work comes from the website. Forty percent <coughs> comes from recommendation from other architects and people that we've worked with before and, and so repeat clients as well come back as well so that's um quite encouraging so we have to be nice to people so be nice to people you get some work um and finally this is something that i carry on. it's really i don't know how the others feel but running a practice is is very difficult it's it has its ups and downs it's you're a business manager you've got to make you know get the invoices in to pay people but you've also want to try to be creative as well so it's a very difficult thing um dual aspect so occasionally say try the up and downs i have this on my phone which just sort of helps me along a bit and it just says success is no accident it's hard work perseverance learning sacrifice and most of all a love of what you're doing or learning to do um and so that's how we try and go about it so thank you Thank you, Mark. Uh, okay, our final speaker uh, this evening is uh, Nicola Dupisani from Stonewood Design, uh, a practice based in Castle Coombe that uh, Nicola runs with Matt Voden and Adam Chambers, uh, a practice that is, uh, has been nominated uh, for a number of high-profile awards like the RBA Stephen Lawrence Prize, um, and recently will be the Small Project Architect of the Year. Um, I think the practice has a sort of emphasis on designing and making in, in detail. Hopefully you'll touch on some of that. We'll find your presentation. Hi, so we're the architectural practice uh, in a, who share premises with builders and uh, work in a converted cow shed uh, with a cow field that, and with cows that occasionally lick our windows. So we're not the academic, high-performing people, so uh, this is going to be a simple presentation. Um, just to sort of explain, this is our little office. You can see the, the fields beyond. That's our sort of five-year plan, that sort of fence in the distance. That's about as detailed as it gets. Um, what I think is really interesting is, is how, how this practice formed. Um, 
like all good decisions in life, it, it came about through a lot of alcohol um, and, um, and, and, a, and a pizza with one of my neighbours who happened to be um, a director at Stonewood Builders. Now, Stonewood Builders are a really good, well-established company for about 40 years. They employ 120 people. They do high-end <laughs> residential stuff. And we just decided, let's try. Let's see what happens. Let's see if, if something can happen. Um, we started off, I went from doing a 20 million pound school at Phil and Clagg to sitting literally, oh, sorry, can you not hear me? Um, uh, sitting at a desk in a builder's office. It was the biggest culture shock on this earth. There was a lot of farting, there was a lot of swearing, there was a lot of cursing, a lot of bloody architects. Um, but it was really good fun, and, and, and I started to learn to be an architect. You know, what is a purlin? God, I don't know what a purlin is. I've been doing flat roofs for... 10 years. Um, so it, I think the importance of, of um, kind of combining, the, uh, this is a really naff bridal photo. Um, <laughs> these are the three, the three partners. Um, I started the company 10 years ago, uh, six years ago. That's my husband on the left. He decided to leave Phil and Clegg and come join me at intense, insane experience. And Adam has just joined as, as partner uh, in the last year. Um, this is, uh, we've, we've slightly changed since then, but we've got a really lovely team of people at the moment. Um, and, and Vanessa, who's the other girl, has left. Um, and so there are actually only um, seven boys and me, which is not intentional, but, you know, we're working on it. Um, these, are the, these are the builders. And you can see, it's what I, I describe them as builders that you can go and have a latte with, which kind of sort of says exactly the ethos of, of, of the, the combination of the two practices. We work really hard, but we also have a lot of fun. Um, and, and I think what's, what's interesting is because we're two separate companies, um, we can work with other builders, they can work with other architects. So there's a real diversity and, and cross sort of uh, contamination of ideas and experiences. Um, so when you talk about the ethos of our practice, that, that relationship with the builders really underlines a lot of what we do and how we do it. I think having, you know, sharing a toilet with the builders is, is an experience in itself, um, but it brings you down to earth, and, it, and, it, and you really talk about really um, simple <coughs> stuff, like how do you build this? And we could be talking about that on day one of the project. What's the cost of a, of a retaining wall? If we sink this in, how much are we costing this? And I think that... That keeps us real and it keeps us grounded. And, and for me, I really cherish that relationship because I think often architects can sort of be away with the fairies a little bit. And this is kind of straight back down, I can tell you. So um, when we talk about our office, we really try and obliterate hierarchy. And a good idea is a good idea. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Um, and so we have reviews, intense reviews. Obviously, with a, being a small practice, you've got to be efficient but we try and get that efficiency front end so that you get to the right solution quickly rather than just doing things quickly for the sake of doing things quickly. So we sort of pool everyone's brains, if you like, and, and get everyone's experiences in it. Um, we really t we try and take care of, the, of our team because we are stuck in a field. And, and three of our guys live in the middle of Bristol, so you can imagine driving out from the middle of Bristol to this field. Um, and so we try and kind of uh, get to know everybody as, as, a, as a whole, not, not just the person, but 
you know, we take the girlfriends and the wives out and we have a good time and we get to know everybody. And I think that that vibe and that connection in the office is really important to producing good work. The other really important thing for, for, for me is, is maintaining the energy in the office. Because obviously, you know, like Tom's got the, the, all the unbuilt projects, I could have stood up here and done 10 minutes of all the crap you do. Um, because as a small practice, you do all the crap. I did a, an extension for a piece of furniture, and that was just like, oh. I did um, some trilly gates for a, for a house in Marlow that was literally painted ice cream pink. And I remember sitting in the services afterwards just going, oh my God, I've just left Field and Clerk and I'm doing bloody ice cream pink trilly gates. So that's like the sort of, yeah, we'll do the trilly gates because then we'll try and get the nice projects afterwards. Um, but this is, this is a project we've just completed. Um, it's a stage outdoor classroom for St. Stephen's um, School in Bath. And it had very little fee associated with it, but it's, it's about how the children play and how they learn. And, and, and for us, that's a really interesting thing. Um, this is, obviously, at Field and Clegg, there's a lot of charity work that's gone on, and we did a lot of work using sandbags and, and all sorts of um, alternative technologies. So we try to carry this on uh, in, in the practice. So this is something that we've just done some images for a school in Uganda that are doing some quite high profile um, uh, fundraising. Whether it actually gets built, because it's super ambitious, is another thing. I mean, hopefully it will. Hopefully we'll get to go out there um, and experiment. But it's kind of uh, to do little short bursts of, of fun and, and stuff that's unrelated to where does the toilet go? Where does the system go? How are we going to do that? I think it's really important to keep that energy level up. Um, so there are two little projects that, I, that I'll really briefly go through because this has had a lot of press and has received a lot of love, which is quite a surprise to us. Um, this is uh, Myrtle Cottage Garden Studio in, in Conquell, just outside Bath. Um, it's not an important project, but for some reason it's sort of captured people's imaginations and it's actually received quite a lot of awards. I mean, you give an architect a lovely site with a lovely client with a good budget, and it's very difficult not to create something beautiful. Um, but this is the original concept, i.e. a non-building, i.e. a hide. And, and whilst it did receive all the awards, the bit that really stuck in all our minds was this photo on the right that the client sent. I mean, a bad photo, but she just emailed and she said, oh my God, thank you so much. I have tears in my eyes. I was working at my desk and I looked up and there was a deer looking straight at me. You've cracked it. And I think, I think that it means more than any other award is that kind of hitting the concept and actually making the, cry, the client cry is quite cool. Um, the other the other's, uh, project that's received a lot of love is, is a private art gallery in a listed building, a listed barn um, on the outskirts of Marshfield. And um, again, the, the concept which was worked up together with the client was a Viking boat in a, in a really stormy sea. Um, and you can see this kind of, you know, it's a 100-meter barn and how we could do that. And then the result is that there's this there's this glowing thing in the stormy sea of a barn. But the reason why I'm showing you these two is, is not because we're not proud of them, but because it's really interesting what it's done for our practice moving forward. And 
you know, we thought, okay, let's submit for a few awards and maybe get a free glass of wine out of it. But actually, what happened was that it really put our name out there a lot. And, um, and still now, so sort of, sort of a year and a half later, we're still getting calls where clients have trawled through all the awards and gone, oh, I like the look of that, let me speak to you. And it might not necessarily transfer into an actual project, but it's those introductions that's really important. So, ironically, this is probably the best PR that we've ever done. Because in terms of marketing and, and all that stuff, we don't employ anyone to do PR, we don't do any marketing, we don't do any advertising, we don't do any networking, oh, cringe. Um, and, and we just, we just, it's word of mouth, like, like Mark's really interesting analysis of how things come. Um, this is, a, is an important part that we've, we're slowly learning about. Um, our clients, which is up for the Myrtle Garden Studios, the top right-hand couple, they've been amazing. And again, more than the awards, it's being invited back there for dinner. And that's the best thing, is sitting in somebody's home that you've designed and carefully gone through, you know that, yeah, that light switch does that, that does that, and the underfloor heating there, and sitting and having a really lovely meal with, with your clients who now become friends. You know which side of the bed they sleep on, you know whether they like a bath or a shower. So there's a real intimate relationship with that that you have to take care of. So this is now um, jumping into the projects we haven't built yet. <laughs> um, and um, this was done, this is just in terms of how we, we getting work through at a slightly different scale, better than the, the, the extension for the piece of furniture. So this is um, Kingswood School, it's a prep school in Bath, so it's a sort of six million pound prep school and associated nursery for 100 babies. Um, and we got this through an invited competition, so Jill Smith, who was um, Edfield and Clegg, was a governor here and got us onto the tender list. And, and we went hell for leather and beat some really lovely high-profile companies, which was great. Um, and hopefully, that was about two and a half years ago, but um, hopefully it starts on site uh, in January. This is something that I can't tell you anything about, but it's really exciting because it's really confidential, is a 30-unit uh, sustainable housing development in Wiltshire. And it is like looking at the European housing sort of ideas of community, of um, of, of really close, close living, but private living, semi-private, et cetera, et cetera. And um, through the awards, we got Googled, um, and we've got a museum of gardening emerging somewhere in Somerset, I can't tell you. Um, but that's, you know, like, amazing. Don't know anything about gardening, know very little about a museum, but yeah, cool, we'll, we'll do that. Um, but in terms of work getting, there's always the, the Google the local bath architects and you get the phone call and you go, yeah, I'd like to extend my utility in my boot room. Are you interested? And it's that kind of heart. Oh. So still, we've, we, we're quite psychotic um, in, our, in our workload. And you know, the stuff we're showing you now is, is, is with clients that are really up for it architecturally, but there are a lot of clients that are really not and you have to push them as much as you can, but there's a, there is always a limit. So this is um, just four new build um, houses that we've, we've got um, in planning, just out of planning, battling through planning at the moment. This is um, quite a, a difficult one to get through planning. This is a, a, a 500 square meter three bedroom house in Hungerford, as you do, um, which is hopefully starting in March, again with Stonewood Builders, which will be great because the synergy really works. Um, and um, a house in Limpley Stoke around a courtyard and then something that the client 
thought they were actually in LA, not in Freshford, just outside Bath. Uh, so that, that's been quite a challenging one because it's quite different to what we normally do and how we normally do it. So it's again, it's like pooling all our resources and our brains. Um, and that's it. Okay, thank you, Nicola. Uh, could I invite all of our panel members up to the front, please, and we can uh, launch into a discussion. Can we not mention Trump? Okay, I think we've heard four very interesting presentations there, some very different um, approaches to practice and discussions about how practice is set up and so forth and how to, to build up and grow a practice. Are there any questions from the floor? Anyone like to kick us off with a question? Don't all rush at once. <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes in, in some ways down to sort of the attitude and you can bring the same approach, the same ethos, the same <coughs> desire to listen and support any client to achieve what they want to do and you know no matter how humble the beginnings or how small it is I think all projects can be fun <laughs> And I think they can all be kind of lovely. And part of our role and responsibility, perhaps, is to try, if we can, to raise the aspirations of the clients for even the smallest of jobs and to recognise when that's impossible and stand back and do a runner swiftly. But no, I, I, I just think all projects can be fun if you, if you, take, you know, take something to it. We're going in line. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you're about to say something, Tom. Um, yeah, I mean, if we, I mean, we do a lot of work that I think we, we say we're, we're now at a stage where we don't have to take so much of that on and we, we can grow it. But, uh, but I say the, the workflow with, with small projects, the, the ebb and flow is quite quick and one will suddenly go on hold and you're like, crikey, we've got to got to pay everyone this month so someone finds out so would you do our utility room like, oh yeah we need we need the money so we we do that but we always approach them from a 
from a um, optimistic point of view in that we can do some do some good um, and we can try and get something out of it. Um, some, most of the time we do. Um, there are a few that um, don't end particularly well. But, um, um, but I think I think when you go to meet, I mean, when you go to meet people, you get a sense of what they are like, and, and then we always, we, always, we always go to see people for free, and we go and speak to them, um, and get a sense for what they're going to be like as clients, and talk about the budget and things like that. And then you get a better sense, and then at that point you can decide <laughs> more so whether we're going to take it or not. But it, it does depend on what what is currently in the, in the workload and, and filling gaps as we need to. So, um. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a constant struggle trying to balance that that need to. to Keep the, keep the salaries being paid, but also to try and sort of maintain a, a design aspiration in what you're doing. Competitions obviously work quite well because it gives you the sort of freedom to develop ideas and, uh, and, and have an architecture that's led by, by sort of you know, thinking in, in, a, in a broader way. But obviously you need to find the time to be able to do those competitions. And, and the challenges change as the size of the practice changes. I mean, we're eight or nine at the moment as a practice. Um, but we sort of survived the, a recession through being very small really, it was just the two of us for most of the time, occasionally three people and we've sort of grown out of that and I think the, 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 when, you, when you're small it's very easy to, to be able to, to be flexible to take on, on board projects as and, when you need, as and when you need to I think when you get bigger the, the, sort, of, the, the, the sort of time scale that you need to think about changes and it becomes much more difficult to run a practice on, on domestic projects what is the ideal size for a practice? Nine. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> Depends on what you want to do. <laughs> I th yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a really interesting question in itself, and one we've been grappling with a lot over the last um, couple of years. We, you know, we've turned down a lot of, lot of small projects over the last couple of years, um, and, and I think we're, we've, we've actually turned down a couple of big projects as well. Carthy and Stones are asking us to do some other things, and we, we said, actually, no, we've got enough on the plate at the moment this time last year. Um, but, but I think what we've become aware of is that the, the, there comes a threshold. At the moment, everybody in the office is hands-on working on architectural project, projects. You hit a certain size, mm. and suddenly the systems and the organisation that you need to put in place, um, you, you start to need to take on you know, office managers or, or people doing roles which are, which are non-architectural mm. roles, which which changes the, the dynamic within the practice, I think. That also touches on a question that quite a few of you mentioned, which is that, that step up in scale and how you get that first step and how that impacts on what you do and then how you might then try and be more uh, selective about maybe the, the other projects that you do. A few, as practitioners, <coughs> making that sort of transition found that an easy thing to do what was the thing that led to that break is it is it the recommendation or is it the the project that got a certain amount of PR or was on in the newspapers what, what's enabled you to start making that step change is it is it the competition that you well, I, th I think for, for me I was very fortunate as I said I mean my parents gave, gave me an extraordinary opportunity to do a house for them um, very privileged I appreciate and realize that and, and I suppose as a, as a result of getting something built anything you're then able to stand up invite people to come and see it and talk about it and um, I like to talk and um, I like to show people around the house and, and 
And as a result of that, I, you meet people. And you meet people, and if you can get them excited and make them believe that actually you can kind of make something really good out of a really crap space, or you can do something that perhaps people wouldn't have anticipated, then they say, would you like to do another job? And I was really fortunate that one of the people that came around on a tour was a member of Bridport Co-Housing, said, would you like to come and give us a talk? And I said, yep, yeah, be happy to come and just you know, have a chat with you. They said, would you like to design the common house for us? Yes, that'd be lovely. I went and got a job with FCB, and they phoned up one morning when I was at a site meeting in Plymouth, and they said, the other architects have dropped out. Would you like to do the whole housing scheme? And I said, I'll have my notice in tomorrow. Thanks very much. <laughs> so you mix your own luck to, to an extent. Um, and I think, you know, you, you meet people, you talk to people. And I don't know. I mean, I've been, I have been lucky. And then it's about persuading people that you can do it as well and just convincing them. And I said, I remember in the interview for the, the bigger co-housing job, I said, it's easy, I've been running a couple of schools on site, you know, one's 13 million, the other's 10 million. This is a small job, it's only, it's only five million, I can do that. And they said, oh, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> but I think another interesting thing is, is a lot of um, practices start straight out of uni and, and the energy and the commitment to do that, I just find unbelievable. So Field and Files, for example, are, are so successful and they just went straight out, green and all, just went, oh, can't do this, pull somebody in, can't do that, pull somebody in, and they, they, they're amazing and they're going massive places. Whereas for me personally, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do that ever, just straight out of uni. And, um, but, and, but now I, I, I pull on those, those contacts and, those, and that experience from, I worked at Arab Associates and, um, and, and at Field and Clegg, and, and still now, they're still generating work, those contacts and those people. And it, I think it's all about people, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to be able to like people and like <laughs> talking to people. Okay, perhaps we could have another question. question incredibly difficult and, and um, I think I, I guess that we were lucky in, in a sense in that the early days of the practice well I mean how, how did it work it was, it was a struggle um, in, in the early days of the practice uh, I, I guess the sort of projects were relatively small we didn't have that heavy a workload and I think actually the, the sort of long time scale that it's actually taken us to sort of develop as a practice is a reflection of the fact that there was a very split priority between family life and, um, and, and, and practice. It's only really in the last sort of three or four years that actually you know, practice has, has gained the, the, the kind of full momentum that, that, that requires us to, you know, really put everything into it. Because, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 we've always worked hard on it, but I, I, I guess, yeah, that, 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 that balance has always been tricky to strike. I think the other thing is that, uh, that our involvement in practice stemmed originally from being involved in teachings. When I, when I first set up the practice, um, in order to sort of allow myself to do that, I took the teaching job at the same time. So I was working half-time, 0.5 as a, as, a, as a lecturer, and, and the other half of the time running the practice. So in a way, I had priorities split two ways, or three ways really, between family and um, 
working at the university and running a practice, and, and at the same time I was building a house, actually, so I had my oh my priorities fit <laughs> four ways. That, that was pretty intense, yeah. There's no straightforward answer, really. I actually think there's more flexibility running your own practice, though, because when, you, when you're an employee, you kind of have to be there and there, whereas now you can... Yeah. Sorry, James. Um, but it's it, there is a lot of there's a, there's a lot more merging between there's there's less there's a lot more of that and and it and it kind of works both ways so there's a little bit of eating in on on both sides. Yeah, I think when you when you when I first started up, say in, in the spare room, it was fine. I mean, you could you could sit at home and you know, work in your pajamas and no one really really care. But once once you take on a, an office, you you have staff, you have you have a commitment to them to be there to help as well. So, but say. Sometimes, so we work in the office, there's an element of flexibility, um, and then at the end of the day we go home, I see my family, and then depending on how, how enthused I am that day, I'll carry on working to get things out, or I will just flake out. <laughs> it's, um, I think, I, I just remembering the first five years of practice, the office was based in, in my house, and there used to be a glass screen between the office and the sort of living room. You used to get sort of small children coming up, <laughs> <laughs> up against the glass screen. It's quite difficult to draw a line between you know, work and family life. Like, yeah. I think as well, we, we sort of talk about this a lot. I agree with Nicola. Running your own business, you've got flexibility. You're the boss, you can do what you want. You can go home when you want. You can work as hard as you like. I think there's um, people have different salary expectations and I think increasingly, particularly once Rob joined me, we um, recognise that you know we're architects, we run a practice, and it's a business, and we need to be better as a profession at being disciplined, at organising what we will do, how long it will take, and how much we'll charge for it, and thereafter how long we spend on it. And sometimes we decide to spend a lot of time on projects, and other times we don't. Um, and I think as an industry, as people who provide a service, um, there's a bit of a sort of sloppiness within the profession that I think mm. we need to address. Um, unless you're doing it for fun and it's your hobby, and in which case, great, you know. But certainly, I, I, we, my wife had a baby a year ago, and so life changed quite significantly. Um, and, and my priorities changed, and, and I'm happy with that. Um, but it didn't last for that long at the moment. We've, we've had a busy phase, but um, we do do stuff together. People go to the pub on Fridays, and I think we've got... Well, they're all here. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got kind of quite a good atmosphere in the office. So. 
Um, we, we're such a small practice. We've got a little studio in the paintworks. Um, at the moment, it's Rob and I and, and, and Jess, who's fantastic. And I, th I talk a lot in the office. We've got a pin-up space. We have a, a, a sort of settle bench seat around a table. We have lunch together every day. And kind of everybody talks about all the projects a lot. And we try and all be involved in everything that we work on. Similarly to Nicola, I mean, you know, it's pulling everybody at, at the right sort of stage to get the best ideas out and and then really pushing them um, so yeah I, I think collaboration within the offices is a really big part of what we do and and I think certainly I'm, I'm learning to try and be a better um, boss director whatever you want to call it I suppose and and trying to you know empower people and give them employees and other people um, parameters within which to work that are defined and, and let people try and explore that um, so that you know they don't end up being frustrated and bored of being an employee because you know I, I want us to work together as a team, you know where we share what we do. Question right at the back. Hi, my question kind of comes from the first talk from Barefoot Architects. You talk a lot about public consultation and spending that time at the beginning of the projects, and actually all the practices mentioned this, like getting to know the site, and um, like being quite creative in how you get to do that. But how do you get the clients to pay for that or factor that into your timescales and kind of make it feasible in terms of the amount of fee you get, that kind of thing? Um, well, sometimes we just pitch it very explicitly. Um, so we identify within our proposals the number of meetings we'll have. And I think what I've learned is that doing community engagement, for it to be effective, needs to be quite structured. And there are a series of workshops sort of um, not as a f any sort of given formula, but there are tools that we can use and, and workshops, um, and, and we just plan it out as part of a programme, make allowances for the time it will take to organise, the time it will take to do, and the time it will take to write up. Um, and I think it's overwhelmingly um, valuable for the whole process um, and, and actually just you know, carries a lot of people with you. Um, you. You also have to face a lot of detractors, um, and I, I think we should be doing that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite hard sometimes standing up against people who, and talking to people who ardently despise the thought of what you're going to do. But at least you're giving them a voice and giving, having the opportunity to answer them as well. I think it's, it's generally accepted by most clients that actually that engagement process is, is, is sort of essential really for, for any development really, to get people on side, to bring them along. I think a lot of our projects we, we, we uh, take part in, in, in various different sorts of those kind of exercises. I think one of the interesting things is one of the projects we did um, for McCarthy and Stone in, in Buckinghamshire, we were sort of slightly dreading a public consultation exercise of going, you know, in, in quite a sensitive location next to a listed building, putting this very substantial um, uh, building of apartments. And we, we did a s several different exercises. One of them was a sort of big exhibition with people dropping in. Another one was a door-to-door -door exercise. And what amazed us actually is we, we it, it became for the client a sales exercise, actually, because everyone we went to, they ended up saying, well, are any of these going to be for sale? You know, how can I get my name on the list? And rather than it being about persuading them, it was about them trying to, to, to purchase the things. So that was quite an eye.
Well, I can't use SketchUp, so I, I do a lot of hand drawing. But I think generally in our, in our practice, we're doing SketchUp and hand drawing at the beginning stages all the way through. Um, and then obviously it needs to commit to CAD. But that hand, I mean, I did some tutoring at Bath University last year, and, and there was like, I, I need to draw on CAD. It's like, no, it's really important to keep the pen and, and, and thick and thin and all the rest of it to keep that going. I think that's absolutely vital. And sitting around workshopping with the clients, you kind of you end up with really lovely drawings that mean nothing to anyone else, but you get the concept and, you, and everybody is contributing and drawing. So I think it's vital to have that. Yeah, we, you know, we've certainly got rolls of trace sitting around the office that people use um, you know, in, in varying amounts. But I guess Vicky and I were both involved in teaching previously. We've got um, a couple of people, Rachel and Nicola, are currently involved in, in, in teaching as well within the office. And actually, when you're teaching, that, that mm -hmm. discipline of sketching is something you're using constantly because you're sitting down with students, talking about ideas, talking about their schemes. And it's something you become more and more used to and practice that and, and, and better at. And it, it, you know, it becomes a kind of an important part of, of how you work. I mean, you use, you use hand drawing in different ways. So sometimes it, it, it is about early stages of sketching things, but actually, you know, quite often it's a sort of post-rationalisation and that you'll work initially with an idea and a sketch, you'll, you'll, you'll start to draw it in CAD and then you'll go back uh, to, to doing a hand drawing in a way to sort of represent the thing as, as something that somehow is, is not quite as sort of hard-lined as, as you, you, you fear the client will take it when, it, when, when it's presented as a hard-line drawing. Yeah, I think for uh, um, most of our early work, early stage work, we always hand draw because it, has, it gives you that fluidity. Um, and then once we take it up to planning, then, then that's when we start engaging with the CAD. But we do use a SketchUp as well. I'm always, um, I don't always just use the red pen for uh, marking it. I do try and <laughs> use a bit of pencil as well um, just to, um, to play on. But I think, yeah, I think it is, it is important. Um, and um, it's, yeah, it, it frees it up. I suppose I think I'm quite an impatient and impulsive and fast person so I find it I think through drawing and I think it's really essential to, to do it and at every stage of the project mm -hmm. I mean, some of those drawings are sketched over SketchUp and you know we use all sorts of things I think you know a reality of, of us is none of us in the office have got fantastic skills at doing beautiful sort of rendering so you know we, we defer to doing hand drawings and I suppose for the nature of work we do and quite a lot of our clients, I think they're quite approachable. Um, a lot of people look at our website and say that, you know, they think it, it and, and the drawings appear friendly. Um, and I think there's a sort of softness to hand drawing, a, a less definitive, finished thing that enables people to engage with them. And so that's kind of why we stick with it. But we need to get better at some of the other stuff. <laughs> Okay, question about three people down there. Okay. Yeah, start with the front there. Um, I'm kind of interested in, in the, this idea of growth that all of you kind of touched on um, and the idea of that at this stage you now know what size project is too small and um, I think a small practice you know, enjoys a dive a domestic client. But it's interesting, I was just speaking to, to a group of, of young that is a huge portion of, of what small practices do do. Um, 
<laughs> we didn't manage that either. <laughs> Stadium? Anyone? I'm not up for a stadium. <laughs> I, the thing that's motivating us at the moment is um, that I, I was only just able to afford to buy a house. I reckon a lot of people sitting in the room are going to struggle to do that. I think we live at a time when we've got an unprecedented sort of housing problem and shortage. I think we live in a really exciting city, um, Bristol, where I think we've got some really interesting things going on that Tom um, is, is progressing with the council and we're, we're trying to... Um, and I think what we're desperately trying to do is package up, work out everything that we've been working on from small projects through to the slightly bigger ones and try and develop a strategy for working in the place that we live to develop better projects within communities for housing. Um, and I think we need to do it urgently. I think we need to do it much better than we have been doing historically. Um, and I think we need to involve as many people in it as possible. Because, and I think every, most people sitting in this room should, should be doing something about it. And I, and I staunchly stand by that. I think you should be banging on the table to um, your councils, your government, your MPs, um, the banks, and everybody that's involved in this process and saying, do something better for it, and we want to help. So yeah, bigger housing jobs. That's where we've <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you, I think, um, I, I did my year out in a very commercial firm in, in, um, in London. And everyone there just longed to do small houses, and everyone that does small houses just longs to do bigger stuff. So it's a bit of a catch-22, but I think we'd like to sit somewhere in the middle um, in terms of people in their office. Um, at the moment, we're sort of building on sort of one person per year just so that I can change my mindset sufficiently to, to, to get the, to grips with you know, having these, not to children, but these responsibilities that you have to make sure everyone's working to that extent. So. Um, stadiums known, a nice little art gallery, something that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think the question comes down partly to what, not necessarily what sort of projects you want to do, but what sort of practice you want to be as well. And, and, and I think, you know, to do really huge projects, it's impossible without being a really huge mm. practice. And, and, mm. and I think, you know, at the moment for us, that's not really where we want to go. And, and actually, having been exposed to some quite large project, projects only in the last couple of years, you know, we've got this one at the moment. Sort of 93 flats in a supermarket, kind of huge projects is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Quite yearn for some smaller projects, really. Um, I, I think Sam's right. Housing is a is a kind of huge priority for us. It's always been what we were aiming to do because all of our early competitions were about housing. It's a, and, and and we had certain ideas about communities and and, and the relationship between um, the sort of design of neighbourhoods and um, <coughs> and the way in which communities form, which actually can only really start to happen at a certain scale. You have to reach a certain scale before that sort of thoughts about how neighbourhoods work becomes relevant. When it becomes more than a house or a couple of houses, you're, you're starting to look at streets. And actually, you know, luckily, we, we are now just reaching a stage where we are doing some of those, those bigger projects, and you don't necessarily need to be a huge 
um, practice to be involved in, in things at the sort of master planning scale. Um, but, but, but that is something we we're sort of starting to get involved in and I'm incredibly excited about at the moment. I think you need to um, have a really positive attitude to the utility room extension <laughs> because I think you can learn from every single project and whether it's learning what not to do or what, what type of client not to engage with in the future, there's always something you can learn. And, it, and you're building it up because it, it is, we go back to the people thing, it's, it's about really connecting and developing that trust with the client, whether it's an, a residential client or, or a bigger developer, is, is getting that trust going. And you, it's, it takes practice and it takes years of talking. <laughs> I think we're running out of time. Maybe got time for one more question. One a strong uh, hand. That's a strong hand up there. Maybe we'll do. Got time for two. Got time for two. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, um, how do you expand this companies, but also uh, have time to do the kind of humanitarian based and community-led projects? Do those projects grow weekly, or, or is it you know do they become less? Do you do less of those projects? Well, well, for us, I've been wanting to do a sort of community charity project for six years and this year is the first time there was an opportunity that arose that we just grabbed I mean, you have to be efficient it's that whole thing of right guys we've got so many buy, the, buy everyone curry lots of wine in the evening let's do it and and it's about that and it, it's kind of if you, you've got to you've got to still keep hold of those 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 roots I think because otherwise you end up doing posh buildings for posh people and that just doesn't work in the greater good. Ask Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think you're always trying to balance um, working on projects that are earning enough money to keep everybody going w with the projects that are, that are more, uh, you know, the, the le less lucrative but perhaps more interesting. And the, the, the trick is just not to have too many of those on the go at the same time, really. So. Um, Sort of goes up and down. It depends what your what, what the workload is and how you can find time to, to, to get involved in some of those things. Yeah, we we thought we had a charity project. We were helping someone out, a doctor who was setting up a um, a practice out in Macedonia. Um, but it turns out it serves um, Russian oligarchs um, <laughs> and their big yachts sailing into this yacht. So um, yeah, we're 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 open for, um, for yeah. As, as Sam says, I mean Sam's put me. A, a little bit to shame that I don't do my social being thing, but yeah. Um, so once I've, once I've looked after myself and the, the mortgage is paid, they, and then yeah, there's, there's charity there that we would love to be involved with. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, I mean, it's a slight tangent, but I think we're trying to be quite entrepreneurial as, as a sort of young practice, and we don't always have enough work to do all the time, and so we sort of seek to find opportunities where we can, you know, it can be mutually beneficial to actually just go out and say to people, well, we'll come and have a look at something. You know, it's being open-minded and open-hearted, being generous with your time to people. And, um, and, and things lead to other things. So that the Brizzlewood thing, I, I, I just lived there and I said, well, I'll, I was drunk one evening on the sofa and I said, well, I'll hold a stool and we'll, we'll do something. I thought, God, what are we gonna do? We put some boards up on some bread crates and spoke to a lot of people. and. Kind of, you know, slowly it's maybe going to emerge into some paid work. Um, I don't really mind if it doesn't, um, because it's really interesting. But I think there's a definite role for us to be, yeah, to be quite entrepreneurial, to be creative with where work comes from, 
and um, and if we see opportunities for stuff that we think needs changing to well, do something about it really um, you just got to squeeze it in around things to do at the weekends not too much final question okay um, I just wanted to pick up on something that a couple of you had mentioned and that's um, connections with universities and teaching um, running a small emerging practice seems kind of like a job enough on its own without taking on teaching roles alongside that but they obviously you obviously see the value in doing it um, so I kind of wanted to ask kind of firstly those of you have, that have been involved or currently are involved with teaching and running a practice what's the kind of reason for it is it purely because you know when you're starting you need to pay bills and so teaching pays for half and the practice pays for teaching half or, okay. um, or is there kind of, you know, is there more of a um, reason for doing it and what do you get out of it as a, as a practice? I, I mean, I can start on that one. When I, when I set up the practice, it was on the back of having a half-time appointment. I, I disagree. I mean, I got paid more for teaching than I did in practice for the first five years, I think. Definitely. So uh, the interesting thing was I, I, I took on the, the teaching role as a, as a way of enabling myself to, 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 to start up the practice without having very much work in the first place. So it did, it provided a salary, but it also provides energy and interest and connections and all sorts of things. But I think the, the thing that interested me about the process is that actually through teaching, particularly on, on, on this, on, on housing, the, the housing work that Vicky and I did with the second years, after five years, we just realised we had a huge amount of expertise that was very, very applicable in practice in a way that we hadn't really imagined we'd do. You, you imagine you come to teaching, bringing your experience of practice to teaching, but actually mm. the, the, the fascinating thing was we were able then to take that expertise and, and, and take it back uh, in, in, into practice, and we found you know, suddenly we, we knew a huge amount about the, the intricacies of designing housing. Yeah, we, uh, I teach um, in first year at the, at the university, not that way. Um, and it's, it's surprisingly how, how useful it is. It's, again, there is a, that initial sort of, oh yeah, I can, that much money is coming in, but actually it helps you as well in terms of creativity. I mean, um, teaching in first year, there's, it's a very much, quite one way in terms of, you know, they suck everything out of you. <laughs> um, but it's quite good, and that, you know, you, you're sketching all the time, you're thinking about you know, eight or nine different projects in a day, in different ways of solving the same problem, and it's it's immensely um, gratifying, and and you get take a, a lot from it. Um, but come second year, the first years don't really want to know about their first year because they were just children, and they don't they want to know about that. So they do, you do tend to be slightly ignored at that after that point. But um, yeah, it's it's a two way thing, but it's really enjoyable and well worth keeping up. Yeah, I think you just learn so much. It's a really informative process, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's very much a two-way thing. Um, and I mean, it, it's exhausting. I, I mean, I was saying to, saying to John um, last night how, you know, trying to, you have to absorb, I don't know, 10 people's projects over a very short period of time, understand it, regurgitate it, and draw it. And so I, I just, I, I didn't sleep um, any night after teaching the last couple of years because I'm churning over everybody else's project. But, you know, with that, definitely, you're kind of thinking, oh, that could be an amazing idea if it was pushed in this direction. So I think it's, um, I, I, sadly, I'm not doing as much this year as, as I have done, um, but I'd like to do some more. A bit too busy. Sorry. <laughs> Fantastic connections, and thanks to Elena for a very nice job that she passed our way. <laughs>
Okay, I, I think we should draw this evening to a close. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you once again to all our speakers. And the only thing remaining to do is to remind you about the next event with Loin & Co. Uh, at the end of November. And we hope to see you all again then. Perhaps you'll join me in thanking our panel once again. Thank you.